Remain standing for the sermon text from Isaiah 11, the first nine verses. Again, give your ear to God's word. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips He shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the faultling together, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters Cover the sea. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this glorious hope in Isaiah 11. Help us as we meditate on it to understand it and to believe it and to live our lives in terms of the hope that you have given to us through. Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at various well-known passages in Isaiah during most of Advent, and now in Christmas, this will be the last one, as we consider the visions that God gave to Isaiah, particularly visions of the Messianic age, the, the coming of the virgin's son, the son of God, the coming of the great king. Isaiah 11 is about victory. It's about the triumph and dominion and peace that Israel's Messiah will establish all over the earth when he comes. Verses 1 to 9 look forward to a time when God's enemies will be subdued and God's kingdom will flourish. This passage about the glorious hope of God's people was written about 700 years, a little more than 700 years before Christ. And Isaiah wrote it during a time when hope seemed to be gone. The Assyrians were oppressing the nations around Israel and coming in on Israel as well. And very soon, they would overtake the northern kingdom. And a little over a hundred years later, In 
586 B.C., the Babylonians would conquer Judah and destroy Jerusalem and bring the temple down to the ground. Isaiah knew something like this was coming. He knew God's judgment was on the horizon. It was inevitable because of Israel and Judah's increasing unfaithfulness. When Isaiah wrote chapter 11, things were bad and they were only going to get worse. Back in Isaiah 6, at the end of Isaiah 6, in verse 13, Isaiah quotes God as saying that the holy seed, the holy nation of Israel, was going to be reduced to a stump. The great tree Israel will be cut down, Isaiah says. Why? Because the tree is not producing fruit. Judah is not being holy. She's not listening to the prophets that God is sending. So God will destroy her. Isaiah 5 says that God's people had become a disappointing vineyard that is bearing no good fruit. So in Isaiah's day, it was hard to have any hope that God's promises to God's people would come to fruition. But Isaiah 11 provides a glimpse of of glorious hope on the other side of all this judgment. It's addressed to the faithful in Israel, the faithful in Judah and the southern kingdom in particular, because they need hope. The unfaithful are in need of judgment. The faithful are in need of hope. They need to be reminded that even though God's judgment is on the horizon, even, even though the Gentiles will conquer Israel and then Judah, Ultimately, God and His faithful remnant will win, will overcome, will be victorious. God's enemies will be conquered. The Gentile nations will not have the last word. The knowledge of the Lord will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God's Messiah will come. He will come to earth. And when He comes, He will set up a glorious, victorious, everlasting kingdom that will eventually include all nations. Those of us living 2,700 years after Isaiah wrote this also need to hear Isaiah's message of hope. Much of what Isaiah was talking about, we get to see. We've already seen it. We've already seen because it's in our past. It's already begun. The Messiah has come, but we still look forward. We still hope for things to come even in our future. And we need to remember that we are on the winning side of the story. The winning side of history. His story. The enemies of the church will be defeated. The enemy in your own heart already has been defeated. Sin and death are conquered foes. The world, the flesh, and the devil have no power over you. So you are no longer slaves to unrighteousness. The kingdom of light has dawned. And if you are in Christ, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the kingdom of light will win. The darkness cannot stand against it. The light is displacing the darkness. And the darkness will lose. This is true in your own soul. It's also true for world history. 
Christ will be victorious in the hearts and the minds of His people and He will be victorious throughout the entire earth. Let's look at verse 1. Isaiah 11, 1. In verse 1, Isaiah fast-forwards to the time when Israel has been reduced to a stump or a stem. It hadn't happened yet. The judgment from Assyria and Babylon was coming. But when it comes, it's going to reduce them to a stump or a stem. The great tree that was once Israel is nothing but a stump and just in Isaiah's vision. All that's left is a stump that has no real hope of ever turning into a tree again apart from a miracle, apart from God doing a mighty work. So it was once a towering tree, but now it's just a stem. It says the stem of Jesse, rod of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, because Jesse, of course, was King David's father. But one will come from Jesse who is greater than David. King David knew that he was not the ultimate anointed one, anointed king over Israel. He knew that he was not the most important king of Israel. He knew that one of his descendants would be an even greater king. In Psalm 110, which we read together responsively, David calls this future king his Lord or his master. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, or Yahweh said to my Lord, my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David knew that someone in his future would be his Lord, his King, the true Messiah. Who is David's Lord? Who is this future King? It's Jesus Christ. And what will David's future Lord and King do? Psalm 110 says he will sit on his heavenly throne while God brings his enemies under his feet. According to David, Yahweh will tell this future king to sit at his right hand on the throne of David while Yahweh makes a footstool out of all of his enemies. Isaiah envisions a day when the line of David will be reduced to a stump, a stem, but he also envisions a day after that when this stump will become a rod or a branch that grows and bears fruit and rules the world. And that rod is Christ the Lord. Verse 2 says that the Spirit of Yahweh will rest on this future king. He will be anointed by the Spirit of Yahweh. King David was anointed with the Holy Spirit. You remember in 1 Samuel 16 when Samuel pours the oil and anoints David as the king, the true king of Israel. And at that point, the text says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But Isaiah says in verse 2 here that the Messiah will be even more richly endowed with a threefold fullness of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. It says that the Messiah will be endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When was this verse fulfilled? When did Jesus receive His threefold fullness of the Spirit of the Lord? When did the Spirit of Yahweh come 
and rest on the Christ. Well, if you were thinking at his baptism, you were right. Matthew 3.16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Isaiah talks about the Spirit resting on him. And in Matthew 3, we see the fulfillment of the Spirit resting on Jesus. So it's, that's what Matthew's getting at here. He's telling us that this is a clear fulfillment of Isaiah 11, verse 2. Verse 3 says that the Messiah's delight will be in the fear of the Lord. So the spirit of the fear of the Lord will be upon him. And then it says his delight, his joy will be in the fear of the Lord. Fearing God will be, bring him delight. He will delight not in sin, in unrighteousness, but in obedience, in righteousness, in doing His Father's will. The future Messiah, Messiah that Isaiah envisions will be able to pray Psalm 40, verse 8, which says, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Is doing God's will in your heart? Is it your greatest delight? Imagine how different your life would look over the last year, the last 20 years, if your greatest joy, your greatest delight during that time had been the fear of the Lord, doing God's will. And now imagine the, things, the thing that brings you the greatest delight, truly. What thrills your heart like nothing else does? Maybe it's something that you're looking forward to. Maybe it's something that you get to experience now and again. Whatever it is, think about it. And now imagine being this excited, this overwhelmed with joy, this ecstatic, this full of anticipation and delight about knowing God's Word and doing His will and fearing Him from your heart. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus exemplified this perfectly. Jesus said in John 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Doing God's will was both the delight of Christ and the food of Christ is it your delight is it your food listen to Psalm 37 verse 31 the law of his God is in his heart his steps do not falter if God's word is in your heart then your steps don't falter if God's word is in your heart then you he directs your steps in righteousness God's Word is not in your heart, then your steps will falter. And having God's Word in your heart doesn't just mean memorizing verses. That's a good place to start. But it's possible to know Scripture in, scripture in your head, but not in your heart. The goal is to have God's Word, as Psalm 37, 31 says, in your heart, so that it is your delight from your heart, from your inner being, so that you fear Him. 
from the depths of who you are. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word, where? In my heart, that I might not sin against you. If you put God's word in your brain, it will not necessarily keep you from sinning against God, but if you hide it in your heart, it will. This means that you should read the Bible not just so you can check off your box for that morning or that evening's reading in your Bible reading program. No, you must read the Bible and meditate on it and pray it and hide it in your inner being. Then and only then you will avoid sin and delight in God's will and fear Him. Delight in the fear of the Lord. Then His will and His work will become your food and your steps will not falter and your delight will be to do what God wants you to do every step of the way. Isaiah 11 verse 3 is about Jesus. But it also applies to those who belong to Jesus. Your delight can and should be in the fear of the Lord. The coming Messiah that Isaiah envisions will be the ideal human being. The the ideal of human faithfulness, we can say. He will find deep joy in living before God in reverence, and he will promote reverence among those he rules. And unlike human, mere human rulers, the Messiah is not deceived by appearances. He doesn't look at the outside and make judgments. The rest of verse 3 says that he shall not judge by what the eyes see, his eyes see, nor will he decide disputes by what his ears hear. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. The Hebrew words for judge and decide in verse 4 are echoes of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. And the interesting thing about Isaiah 2, 4 is that in that verse it is Yahweh himself who is doing the judging or the deciding. This oracle in Isaiah 11 verse 4 is telling us that the judgments of God back in Isaiah 2 verses 2 to 4 will be carried out by the Messiah, the King, God's anointed. The Messiah will defend the weak and He will slay the wicked with the rod of His mouth which is the truth of His Word. The rod of Christ's mouth here is it it comes forth from His mouth to conquer, to destroy. And there's really two aspects to this, two meanings. It comes to conquer foes to make them friends. That's what the Word of God does. The rod coming out of His mouth, the Spirit on His lips, the Holy Spirit. But it also... The final day will destroy enemies and judge them eternally. The first coming was, he didn't come in judgment, right? I did not come to judge, he says. He will come to judge at the end, but his word and his spirit initially conquer by saving. The breath of his lips of verse 4 is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of his lips. The same word there that's used for spirit. Ruach. 
the breath of his lips, the holy breath, accompanies the word, the rod that comes out of his mouth, making it lethal. So the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips, the word and spirit. And Jesus conquers the nations with his word and his spirit, with the gospel. These are the weapons of warfare. When the word of God goes forth and does its mighty work, Jesus is striking the earth with the rod of his mouth. When the spirit of his lips accompanies his word, it slays those who come into contact with it. When you have come into contact with the rod of Christ's mouth and the holy breath of his lips, then you can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everyone is going to be conquered. Everyone is going to die by coming into contact with this destroying, conquering word and spirit. It's better to come into contact with it in this life because you are being saved by it. In verse 5, we see that the Messiah is not clothed the way human rulers clothe themselves. Look at what he's wearing there. The belts around his waist and his loins are the belts of righteousness and faithfulness. What comes to your mind as you read that? The belts of righteousness and faithfulness. It should remind you of Ephesians 6. The armor of God that Paul describes in the last part of Ephesians 6 comes largely from various parts of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11.5 is where Paul gets the idea of talking about a belt of truth or the belt of faithfulness. The belt of faithfulness or truth in verse 5 is Christ's belt. The belt of truth that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 is first the Messiah's belt. A belt that he put on and wears. Jesus was the first one to wear the belt of truth. When we put on the armor of God, we are imitating our Lord who put it on first. And this puts a different light on Ephesians 6, on the armor of God passage. The armor of God is not primarily our armor. It's primarily Christ's. And it's not just Christ's armor. It's Christ Himself. Christ is righteousness. Christ is faithfulness. Christ is truth. John 14, Jesus is the truth. He doesn't just speak it. He is the truth. He is the belt of truth in the flesh. So when you put on the belt of truth, when you put on the whole armor of God, you are putting on Christ Jesus Himself. As Paul says to do, put on the new man. Put on Christ. So when you put on the armor of God, you're putting on Jesus. Paul exhorts us in Romans 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So putting on the armor means putting on Christ Himself. He is your righteousness, your truth, your salvation, your faithfulness. He is your armor. Verses 6-9 to nine envision 
a Messiah who will not only save Israel, but who will save the whole world, all the nations. The Messiah's peace will permeate the entire earth. In verses 6-8, to Isaiah says that the wolf and the leopard and the lion and the bear will no longer eat their prey. Instead, they will eat alongside their prey and they will be at peace with them. So why do you think Isaiah uses this imagery of these animals, these predators, making nice with their prey? He's using imagery that was common to his day. He was painting a picture of the kind of peace that the Messiah will accomplish. These predatory animals, the the wolf, leopard, bear, and lion, they represent the nations and the empires that prey on God's people. They represent nations like Assyria and Babylonia. These are the fierce predators, and Judah is their prey. But Messiah Jesus will change all of that. He will cause the nations to be at peace with His people. The wolf-like and bear-like nations will no longer hurt and destroy God's people. That's what verse 9 says. Instead, the nations will dwell peacefully with God's people. And we've already been told how the Messiah will accomplish this. He will accomplish it through the rod of His mouth and the breath of His lips through the Word and Spirit. And Jesus has already begun that process. The process is, is going on now. He's bringing about, He's been bringing it about for 2,000 years. He's been moving history in this direction ever since He sent the Holy Spirit to His people at Pentecost. His kingdom has been spreading throughout the earth like leaven spread throughout a loaf. The Prince of Peace has been taking His peace to the ends of the earth. And He will continue to expand His kingdom by His holy rod and His holy breath. He will continue to strike the earth and slay God's sworn enemies, turning them into loyal servants. The end of verse 9 tells us how it will look at the culmination of the Messiah's kingdom. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is how history will climax by water. All of it. So someday, all of the earth will be covered with the the nations of the earth will be at peace with one another and with God's people. They will till Christ returns. The kingdom of God will advance like leaven in a loaf. Thank you. Athanasius was one of the great theologians and pastors of the early church. Now he lived in the fourth century. He's sometimes called Athanasius the Great. His greatest known work is the book entitled On the Incarnation of the Word of God. Now the word incarnation refers to the taking on of our flesh and becoming man. Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation. Jesus took on our flesh. In his book, on the incarnation of the Word of God, Athanasius explores the meaning and the theological implications of the incarnation. What does it mean that the Word became flesh? What does it mean that He became human? What does that mean for humanity? What's it mean for history? What's it mean for 
the church for the kingdom of God. In his book, Athanasius describes how the kingdom of Christ will grow and expand and be victorious in history because of the incarnation, because of what Jesus did in his flesh. Here's what he wrote. Since the Savior came to dwell in our midst, not only does idolatry no longer increase, but it is getting less and it is gradually ceasing to be. Similarly, similarly, not only does the wisdom of the Greeks no longer make any progress, but what used to be is disappearing. And demons are routed by the sign of the cross if they so much as try to impose on people their deceits and oracle givings and sorceries. On the other hand, while idolatry and everything else that opposes the faith of Christ is daily dwindling and weakening and failing, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. Therefore, worship the Savior who is above all and who is mighty, even God the Word. When the sun has come, darkness prevails no longer. Any of the darkness that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also, now that the divine epiphany of the Word of God has taken place, the darkness of idols prevails no more. And all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by His teaching. Now don't think that Athanasius was just a positive thinker. Or that his circumstances must have made it easy for him to be optimistic about what Jesus accomplished in his flesh and on the cross. Athanasius didn't enjoy peaceful and quiet surroundings as we do. He did not know a life of tranquility. He was alive during one of the most severe persecutions the world has seen, at least had seen to that point. During the early part of his life, the emperor Diocletian had attempted to stamp out the Christian faith completely. Athanasius did not experience firsthand Isaiah 11.9, which looks forward to a time when the nations and the empires are not hurting or destroying God's people. And yet, Athanasius believed that Christ was moving history toward Isaiah 11.9 nonetheless. Athanasius faced severe persecution just for defending the doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. He was sent into exile by the government five times. And on some of those occasions, he almost died. It was Athanasius against the world. Yet he never lost sight of the most basic fact of world history. The Word became flesh. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. And because of what He did on the cross, the world is flooded with light. And the darkness cannot overcome it. This hope is the basis of the Christian faith. It's also the basis for many of our Advent and Christian uh, and uh, Christmas hymns, which unabashedly reflect this expectation that Christ will triumph, not be defeated. He will triumph over the world through the gospel. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, which expects the Son of God to come and disperse the Old Covenant's 
gloomy clouds of night and put death's dark shadow to flight. We sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, Jesus, which says that Jesus is Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, desire, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. This morning we sang, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. We'll sing again, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her King. Not just Israel, but let the whole earth receive her King. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, for as the curse is found. And of course, just as the curse is found all over the earth, so will His blessings flow to the ends of the earth. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. Finally, listen to these triumphant lyrics from the carol that came upon a midnight clear. For lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold when with the ever-circling years comes round the age of gold, when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. These hymns reflect the inspired hymns in the Bible. The book of Psalms is full of language about the victory of Christ's kingdom. Psalm 22, 27 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before Him. Psalm 47, verses 1-3, to Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy, for the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. Psalm 72, verses 8-11, to May He have dominion. This is the Messiah, the Christ. May He have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before Him and His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render Him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before Him. May all nations serve Him. The kingdom of the Messiah is a victorious kingdom. And it's victorious because it is established in the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, the Son of God, Israel's King, who is now the King of the world. I'll end with three brief applications. First, it's not complicated to participate in the victorious kingdom of Christ. All you must do is have faith in the Lord Jesus, King Jesus. 1 John 5, 4 says, This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And it's our faith in Jesus. It's our faith in the righteousness of Christ. Your faith in Jesus is your participation in Christ's victory over the world. The victory is. Is his. He won the victory. Your victory 
is in him, by uniting yourself to him, by trusting in him, putting your faith in him. That's how you have victory. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, the flesh, and the devil. So if you are in Christ, then you will experience victory over sin that comes with being saved. Saved people are victorious people, not defeated people. Christians are not perfect, but they are conquerors. And they are conquering because they are victorious in Christ. Second, the kingdom of God will continue to be victorious. Christ's kingdom is conquering the nations because it's a conquering kingdom. The blood of the martyrs will continue to be the seed of the church. The church will continue to grow. The kingdom will continue to expand. The rod of Christ's mouth and the spirit on his lips will continue to conquer the hearts and minds of God's enemies just as they have conquered you. So keep sharing the love of Christ. Keep sharing your faith. Keep loving one another so that the world can see the truth through you, through us, God's people. Keep bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Keep letting your light shine. Keep being a city on a hill. Keep pointing people to Christ. Do everything that you can to participate in Christ's victory over unbelief and ungodliness. Third and finally, remember that victory is often painful. The kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven through the suffering of Christ fundamentally, but then through the suffering of His people. Until Jesus comes back, there will be persecution and trials and tribulations and hardships. As the number of God's people increases, so will their suffering. As the bride of Christ expands, so the fury of Satan intensifies. Makes him angry. Which results in more suffering, more persecution, more of Satan's wrath, more martyrdom, more discomfort, more oppression. That's what Revelation 12 teaches us. Athanasius suffered in his his whole life, his entire life, for the sake of the gospel. But he never lost hope in the triumph of Christ's kingdom. Don't let suffering, whether it's your suffering or someone else's suffering, don't let suffering, the reality, the hard reality of suffering, cause you to doubt. On his missionary journeys, Paul would tell the followers of Christ, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The ultimate example of a painful victory for the kingdom of God's sake is the cross of Christ. There's never been and there never will be a suffering so deep and so painful as what Jesus experienced on the cross. But on the cross, Christ was the victor. He died for your sins, but He was never defeated. He wasn't defeated for your sins. He died for your sins as your victor, as your champion. The cross is precisely where Christ gained the victory, including your victory over sin, Satan, and death. The cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, is why Isaiah 11 verse 9, will become a reality on this earth. 
the greatest grief gave birth to the greatest glory. It was true for the suffering Messiah. It will be true for you. It will be true for God's people throughout the earth. Christ's glory is your glory. Your faith in Christ means you have the victory and the glory. And that glory will dominate in your heart and it will dominate the entire earth. Let's give thanks for this vision of hope. Father, thank you for what you have accomplished and are accomplishing through King Jesus in his blood. Help us to be faithful followers of Christ. Help us to take, take up our crosses faithfully and for the joy that you've set before us when we do take up our cross. Help us by the power of your Spirit living in us. In Jesus' name, amen.